Shumai, welcome back to the H-Hour podcast. Sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation who raise money for military charities. They do this through organising rugby-orientated events, and have been doing so since 2009, when they were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed serving on operations in Afghanistan with the Parachute Regiment in 2008. Since forming in 2009, Rugby for Heroes have raised over £110,000 for military charities. As I said, they do this through fundraising events. They started off by having one epic event a year, the Rugby for Heroes Festival at Old Leventonians RFC in beautiful Warwickshire. And since then, they've expanded the types and numbers of events they do a year to include other festivals, such as beer and gin festivals, and supper clubs, where you can turn up meet other amazing people who want to be part of the fundraising journey that Rugby for Heroes have started off. The pandemic has caused, obviously, real problems for uh, for uh, event hosting people and event hosting organisations like Rugby for Heroes, but they've got an event coming up nonetheless, and that is going to be on the 26th of June at Old Lemonsonians RFC. That is a Rugby for Heroes Festival at Old Lemonsonians RFC on the 26th of June. Forces Barbarians RFC will be playing Old Lem's Nomads, and there will be all a manner of festivities going on that day. Make that your go-to event. The first thing you do when this lockdown lifts in terms of big organised events, come along. Go onto the website. Uh, the website is rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org, or details on social media at rugby number four heroes. Thank you to Mike and everybody at RFH. Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Development Society. The Development Society is a community of people who want to be better than they were yesterday. They're more than just a clothing company. They truly are a community of like-minded people looking to improve. From merchandise, where you have to earn it, not simply buy it, to weekly Zoom yoga sessions. They are the best kind of people you can find. They're hard workers. The community is open to all who want to improve. If you want to get involved with DevSoc, Join their infamous Daily Waves newsletter. You can sign up for that via email address on their website and get involved with their Slack community. Okay, The Development Society are active on Instagram and Facebook as at the Development Society. Um, and to get more of an understanding of their philosophies, visit the Development Society.co.uk. And like I said, that is where you can go and sign up for that very useful, very popular Daily Waves newsletter. In the meantime, in their own words, stay wavy. Thank you to DevSock uh, for sponsoring the podcast. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Monkey Mountaineering. Monkey Mountaineering is a veteran-owned niche adventure travel company who were founded in 2017 by Sam Marshall, and they're now in their fourth year providing mountain-based travel and adventure holidays. The main trips they offer include treks up Kilimanjaro, the highest mountain in Africa, Tukal, the highest mountain in Morocco and North Africa, and Aconcagua, the highest mountain in South America. They also offer treks at Everest Base Camp and have recently added other treks in Nepal to their portfolio, including a trip to climb Mera Peak, which at 6,467 metres, that's right, 6.5 kilometres, it is the highest trekking peak in Nepal. Sam has been a mountaineer for over 30 years. Uh, during his service in the army, he was lucky enough to be involved in expeditions to climb hardcore mountains on every continent. 
He now uses the skills and experience he gained as a military mountaineer to run his company and help people make lifelong memories through fantastic mountain journeys. Specialising in small group travel, all monkey mountaineering trips are planned with military precision and focused on exceeding customer expectations. All their trips can be made bespoke and customised as required. Full details of all monkey mountaineering full details of all monkey mountaineering trips and services can be found on their website. Website is monkeymountaineering.com, but they're also on Facebook and Instagram at Monkey Mountaineering. Check them out, give them a like, and be inspired by the awesome images from some of their trips. Thanks guys for sponsoring the podcast. Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Aardvark provides advanced systems for the protection and management of territories, borders, assets, and people for a global customer base. The Aardvark solution incorporates risk management, satellite and UAV imagery for situational awareness, safe systems for the identification and destruction of landmines and the remnants of war, and standoff explosive, 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 shall I Tron Connery, explosive, and standoff explosive detection technologies. Aardvark operates in the humanitarian, critical defence, security and commercial sectors in the Middle East, Africa, Asia, Europe and the Americas and is widely regarded as the most effective landmine clearance system in the world. Aardvark's expertise is in the creation and implementation of safe systems for the investigation, decontamination and handover of land impacted by the remnants of war. Following the Relatively recent acquisition of Aardvark in August 2017, the new management has sought to develop and expand the company's offerings with systems and solutions that complement the company's highly regarded status. One such enhancement is the addition of advanced drone UAV surveillance technologies, providing the company with market-leading situational awareness for mine clearing, counter-terrorism, border security and asset protection operations. Aardvark's operations have been responsible for neutralising hundreds of thousands of landmines and unexploded ordnance devices, saving innumerable lives around the globe over a very noble 35-year history. Check out more about Aardvark at aardvark.group and search them online on social media, uh, the Aardvark Group. Thank you, everybody there. On to the podcast. My guest today is Professor Eddie Cohn. Eddie is a retired British police officer spent many years with the Met Police and in specialist operations units within the Met. Uh, in totally served for 19 years. He was medically discharged uh, due to PTSD, and he now runs the Eddie Cohn Academy of Jiu Jitsu, having been training in Jiu Jitsu, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, since the 90s. Uh, directly involved and trained by uh, members of the Gracie family, including Helio. He's a black belt. He's an awesome dude. And I enjoyed this chat. And I'm sure you will do too. This is the H-Hour Podcast. My name is Hugh Keir. And my guest today is Professor Eddie Cohn. Enjoy. Cone, Ron. Hey, it is Cone, isn't it? He it is. Of course, it is. Cone, yeah, of course it is. What else are you going to call me? Oh, mate, don't. <laughs> I had a, I had a, I, 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 I interviewed someone before, and his his first name is spelled A L E X S. I said, Alexis, pleasure to have you on. He says, 
Just Alex. Alex, 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 Alex with an S. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, we were talking before we started recording. You were going to explain lighthouse mm. theory to me. Then in classic Hugh Kia fashion, you went completely off on a tangent and didn't explain lighthouse <laughs> theory to me. Talk to me, Goose. Yeah. So lighthouse theory is something that, that I came up with. I've I've been around uh, the sports industry for many, many years, mentoring um, elite athletes now, um, all the way down to people that want to get into the sport. Um, and that mentoring or coaching isn't just on the fighting tip that goes into their life. Um, so people come into the gym, leave the gym, go away for a while, a couple of years, 10 years even, as a, a case happened recently. Um, and then out of the blue, they give me a call and we talk about life. We talk about where they're at in their life, the problems they're having. And the lighthouse theory is that I always refer to them as when they're in their darkest hour. Right in the distance is a small little light and they can always make their way home. I'll always be there for them to support them and, and help them the best way I can. Whether it's business, whether it's just, just a chat or whether it's um, training. They want to get back on the on the rails and start going again. Yeah, it's one of the. I think it's reaching out, and connecting when Absolutely. when you don't when you don't want it. It's just like a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. Yeah, I think that was um, that was probably the most the single mo most important thing that I found most difficult to do was when I was in a real bad way was to speak to people and the people who don't come back from those kind of depths are they don't reach out and it's, I understand why. Why do you think that is? my own experience um because when i was at my worst uh i this, this one will make you've this. turned this already on, around. This, this you've one. turned this round already <laughs> this one you really did that to me Hugh, this is classic here did you see the defensive pose you just took then well <laughs> outrageous anyway i'm going to switch back to being the interview in a minute eddie Jesus Go on, i'm just interested <laughs> Classic I'm, interrogation I'm tactic. Just, I'm just interested, mate. That's all. Uh, because when, so for me, when I was when I was at my worst, um, I I probably felt a combination of shame, uh, embarrassment. Uh, I felt like um, there was nothing respectful around me about me. I was of no use to anyone. I was in. I was. I was in. Uh, what's the word? I was. I was. I just caused people problems. Uh, it's better off not being in the knot, and that was one thing in, in terms of the reaching out to people. If I was to if I was to go, ah, I'm going to ring my lighthouse guy, my beacon guy, Eddie. I wouldn't want to do it because in 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 speaking to you, or it wasn't you at the time, it was uh, a guy called Luke Luke Hardy, and um, to speak to him meant that I had to address what I was feeling. Not that he would ask me about it because he was. He knew not to, but he knew that just being on the end of the phone was good enough. But it meant I would have to. So I was that exposure of vulnerability, weakness, etc., etc. Things that I don't know what your experience with the Met, but things that with the military, um, especially infantry, especially power edge, I think we are conditioned, and rightly so, we are conditioned to not want to uh, expose to anyone, our subordinates, exposed to anyone that we have weaknesses or we're not the ultimate human being because I need, I was a leader, I need to lead people, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and so to, 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 to then try and recondition yourself to be in touch, more emotionally intelligent, more emotionally aware, not comfortable at all. It's not a comfortable situation at all. I think that men have been 
programmed or groomed from day one to be hard asses, to be um, the weight carriers, the breadwinners, all of that stuff that goes with uh, masculinity from the day of day dot, from the day of dawn. And for any man to put that down, put them bags down, take that weight off them and go, actually, I'm not feeling good today. I'm feeling bad today. I'm feeling suicidal today. I'm feeling upset today. It takes a lot. You know, it takes a lot to shed that skin, especially in your background. Um, I can talk about my background, but my background's not your background. Two totally different people doing a totally different job. Although they do have similar, um, there are some parallel concepts there. Um, the what you summed up was was absolutely right as i said to you just before we we got here i had a conversation in the car on the way up here with someone who is at that point who is at that point and they needed to be told some truths and it's better to tell the truth with love than to tell the truth from a place of dishonesty or, or deceit and i could have easily i could he it's a victim mentality with that situation and where you find and i'll tell you why I've removed from my vocabulary the words but and because. I've done that just as a course. Um, I don't believe in buts or because. I believe in owning what we do, every single detail, every single thing that we do, every single choice we make is down to us. I didn't do it because they made me do it. I didn't do it because that happened. I did it because I wanted to do it. I'm in charge and I'm in control of that. And once we understand that, from a, a real place, not a place of like, um, not, not really a self-ownership place, but from a place of like deep understanding inside, you suddenly, I felt, I feel regenerated, rejuvenated with that, that I can actually say, listen, I did that and I did it because of this, not because of that, I did it because of the choices I made, not because I was told to or, or any other reason. Um, and where you find that victim mentality, that's what I label it as where you have family members and friends and other people saying, oh, yeah, poor you. Yeah, you did that because of this. And, yeah, we get that. You'll find they're all victims. They all flock together. They all live and they harbor that victim mentality. And the moment you step out of that and look back, listen, I was a victim my, half my life. Who doesn't want that, that comfort cushion and all the rest of it? But there is a point where you have to go, this is on me. And all these choices and these decisions are because of me. And once you understand that, Man, it's so different. It's beautiful over here now. It's not the same. It's not what it was. Um, and I look at people and I go, man, that is just victim energy. You know, that really is. Yeah, you get the vic you got the victim energy <coughs> side of it, which is, and, but also it demonstrates the same sort of behaviours, the same patterns. Is something that I would I wouldn't describe as the victim mentality, but I'd, I'd probably describe it as the flipping woke mentality at the moment. In that exactly the same thing an unwillingness to accept blame or accountability for something Absolutely. and i see it in the younger generations definitely at the moment i've got two young daughters mm. and I see it occasionally there and when, it's, when uh, you say it's the, always a reason for something else of course of course because it's a blame society it's a blame society it's never my fault excuse me it's never my fault you know it's always the fault of another body or another agency or another person or another thing you know no one said to you hey Hugh, don't get up today and come in and do this podcast. Stay at home and play PlayStation. If you play PlayStation, right? Xbox, man. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying. I'm just, I'm just stating a point. But I am super tough on myself. I'm super tough on my, my kids. I'm super tough on those around me in the sense of 
that energy just sucks, saturate, you know, it just pours the life out of me. Now, when we go back to people that, that are in that mindset of what we were talking about, where they feel suicidal, they feel this, they feel that, sometimes that's not their fault. There are other factors around that. But when you drill into that, when you like the conversation I had today was, um, yeah, I'm on, I'm, I'm drinking a lot. And I said, listen, the alcohol doesn't pick itself up, unscrew the cap, pour it into the glass, the glass lifts and you drink it yourself. Now, that's a conscious choice. There's a single denominating factor with all this madness and destruction that's going on around you. And I'm talking to that single denominating factor right now. And I heard the penny drop. I heard the penny drop, right? So so that's where I, that's that's what I'm I'm talking about with with that scenario. Now I'm not saying there isn't situations where there are people that are in those situations because they have nowhere to turn. But me personally, I'm providing a single place of benefit. I'm three quarters of the way through my life at the moment. People don't really realize how old I am. It's top secret information, G14 classified, right? But I've lived the life of a 99 year old in the years of the age that I am now. Um, and I just seem to attract these energies and it just is what it is. You know, I take that, I relish that all day. Voice of reason and speaking sensibly is what that is. How, how did you, how did you come to learn to come to pull that, uh, de you know, delete, but, and because from your vocabulary, why, what led to that mm. conscious decision for you to start living? Cause it's obviously, that's just two practical examples, but you, you obviously changed the way you live it. Yeah, for sure. What, what led to that? Um, I just think it was, experiences that I'd been through, I, you know, I, I can't pinpoint it exactly, exactly what it was. But what I can tell you is I was, listen, growing up, I was an asshole, you know, I was, a, I was a dick when I was younger. Um, and anyone who knew me then that I'd ever been a dick or an asshole to, let me apologize to you now, because you know, that's legit. You know, if, if you knew me when I was growing up, what an idiot, but I had to go through that to figure out who I am now and I think some of the changing points were from the Met some incidents within the Met some incidents from influences in my own life and I think I've always strived to be better and not be the same someone said to me the other day oh I'm, you know you're not the same this was on Instagram you're not the same person that I knew 10 years ago you're damn right I'm not I'm not the same person I was yesterday <laughs> if you knew me yesterday and you know me today I'm not the same person and uh, but that's growth that's my own choice that's my own growth if you go over my pictures on Instagram um, or what information is there, you won't see me with a group of people. You just don't see me. You see me with a, a group of training partners, but I'm always solo. I'm always flying on my own. You know, it's, I work better that way. It's a better principle for me. I'm not going to offend nobody with honesty. I'm not going to shatter nobody's, you know, victim mentality. I'm not going to shatter nobody's dreams by, by being me. Um, I, I just, it's just that, uh, Hugh. I can't pinpoint anything. It's just life experiences, multitude of them. Are you nervous about, are you nervous about publishing your backstory? Are you nervous about the book? I'm not nervous. Is? I know some people that are. <laughs> <laughs> um, am I nervous? No, because it's, uh, it's looking through a window into my perspective and my life and my journey. It's not anyone else's journey. This isn't his history. If we break that in half, it's his story. This is mystery, my story, right? So it isn't, it isn't 
I don't care who who really, oh, you know, they can't relate to that. Fine, you've never been through that. I can't relate to some of the stuff you've been through. Um, so I'm not nervous about publishing it. It's a complete kind of um, insight to me, what makes me tick, how I operate, how I work, uh, experiences that I've been through. Um, and there's been some very dark ones and there's some really good ones, you know, really good experiences. And I'm not afraid to, to kind of put them out there and talk about them. I know some people that are, but um, but I'm not. You know, it's a complete kind. And I think you get to that point in life where you're like, man, this is who I am, and 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 take it or leave it. You know, if if you're with it, you're with it. If it resonates with you, it does. If it doesn't, let's keep it moving. Are you finding the process enjoyable of putting that stuff on paper? I'm finding it. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a release for me. Stuff I've wanted to say for years that I've bottled up that I couldn't get out, that I, listen, not that I couldn't get out, that I, that didn't make me feel vulnerable, that didn't make me feel, you know, I had to keep this staunch mentality, because people that know me will say, oh yeah, that guy's this and that, if you really know me, I'm a quite a gentle soul, I'm a quiet person, who likes my own company, but for me to come out and say that, five years ago, ten years ago, you would never get me saying that, you know, you would never, there were times when I'd leave shift, uh, in the Met after dealing with some of the most horrendous things and go home, turn the lights off in the dark and lick my wounds and cry. And no one would know that. No one would ever see that because we, we, were, never show, we were never told to show that emotion. You know, there are certain things that I can now talk about, which is a healing process. This is part of my healing process, you know, and I understand that now. I didn't understand it then. Um, and, and the theory is that when you work in a job like we both have, different spectrums, but similar sort of attitudes, they keep taking from the well. And eventually the well will run out of water or we're not able to carry the buckets anymore. That's eventually what happens. Um, and I was at that point. And I recognized that point, you know. Um, and 10 years later, close to 10 years of me now being out, where a lot has changed and people have changed and the way they do things has changed, I still look back in and go, you guys are dinosaurs. Like, you haven't learned anything, really. You know, and, and I'm talking about the Met here. The Met is the same group of people that get accused of something and don't fight it. They will settle out of court. They don't fight it, you know. That is the one of the worst and most frustrating things for me. Especially when you know you're in the right, you know, and, and you're going to ask me, oh, why do you think that is? I have no idea, but that needs to change. I have no idea why they do that. If you take the Met to court for, you know, we can see this in history dictates that we can go back and look at that. When they have been taken to court for something, which we know is like from the inside, that's, that never happened. That's not true. They settle out of court because they don't want bad press. How can you give bad press to someone? That already has bad press anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's probably a combination of that bad press thing, but also it's I I'd suggest it's less resource intent intensive to settle out a court than it is to go through the whole court court process in terms resource in terms of taxpayers' money, time, money. Yeah, I don't know, but you're right because the thing is, is that uh, setting out a court for an onlooker, a layman. What does that say? It, it's an indication it's of guilt. guilt to them. Right. When it isn't, I, I understand what you're saying, isn't always the case. Go back to, mate, you talking about, and uh, stop. You mentioned something before the podcast, and it's, 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 it's a, a perception of uh, 
of of what your what's the word uh, your frequency of uh, your frequency of traumatic events. I'll, I'll I'll describe it as a frequency of high intensity, high pressure events, and how often you have to do them. Met police and talking about police in general, mm-hmm. right? How to do them on a daily basis, and it's a it's something that I've only just I've only recently realised. It doesn't it's not just with the police, it's with other other things. Paramedic, for example, absolutely. And the other one I got I got I learned about it from is in terms of differences to the way I experience stuff was uh, a thing called the MERT Medical Evacuation Response Team, mm-hmm. which you mentioned. We were talking about Ross mm-hmm. Moy, Doctor Ross Moy. He was yeah. a doctor in the MERT. I had another guy on his XRF regiment, and he spent a lot of time in the MERT. And and Tom Martinson, a real suffers with PTSD now, um, but he's 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 got a he deals with it well. And he was saying like when you're on the moor and you're going into something, and this is what resonates with what you were talking about and what Doctor Ross Moy was talking about. And my mate who's a par- Luke Hardy, in fact, is a paramedic okay. in London. What he was talking about is that when you get called out, you're going into someone's worst day. When yep. when you go, it's someone's worst day. Every every time, bar none, someone yep. is having a nightmare of it, and you're going in there to try and. And what do they want from that? They want resolution. They yeah, want exactly. answers. They want everything. <clears throat> and um, so that kind of repeated, high, highly stressful, highly stressful environments you're going into on a repeated daily basis. Mm. Whereas I never experienced that. It was there was times where. Come on, man! You're playing no, it down. No, I'm, just, no, I'm not. No, I'm serious. So there's no. I could go. You know, there was times where mm. you'd have a lot of stuff going in the day. Three, four, five, six. Mm-hmm. Uh, Firefights in the vertical commas in a day, contacts, and we got contacts in a day, right? Um, and there's others that wouldn't, wouldn't be anything, right? All relatively stressful, but not every time was a flipping nightmare. And it was for, you know, four or five months at a time, I think the it was five months, you know, without, without a break. But not every day, non stop. Mm. Uh, like you were saying, you do what, five day, five? Seven on, two off, seven on. Um, when I was there, seven on, two off, quick changeover. No, sorry, seven off, on. So that could be seven days. Then you do either a quick changeover, which means you're out and back in for the next day, two till ten, late turn, paper day. And then it would be five off, seven back on, uh, two days off, depending on deployment, depending on what was happening proactively on that that group, depending on what group you belong to. Um, That Working in that highest stress level, when I joined the Met, I joined one of the busiest borrowers in the Met. Unbeknownst to me, it was that busy. And I would turn up to shift on the early car, and there would be something like 27 outstanding I-cores. I-cores are immediate response cores. So there would be an early car. We would turn up. And remember, I'm talking for your listeners. I'm talking 10 years ago. That may have changed by now. I don't know what their protocols are. But I would turn up. There would be an early car. We would jump into the early car, and off we'd go straight away, blue lights and two tones. Now, the neurological side of, of that, starts earlier on in the day it doesn't start that day when you arrive at the job so what happens is during your day you suddenly go oh i'm on i'm on i'm on the area car tonight there's six weeks postings back then i'm on the area car tonight a lot of things come into play so i'm thinking about the i'm thinking about the driver if i'm the operator and he's the driver i'm thinking about who's the driver Oh, it's that guy. I know he has a ten. I'm very meticulous in the way I am. I know he has a tendency to carry his packed lunch in the front footwell. I've got to be careful, even me, that that doesn't slide under the accelerator or the brake when we're on an I-call and something bad happens. So during our conversation, I have to get that sandwich box and move that packed lunch box for my own safety without letting him know. 
I also have to be aware of how he likes me to operate the RT equipment, how he, how he, how he likes me to operate the radio transmissions, how, as an observer, I'm able to get him from A to B, because before the MDT came in, it was all maps, A to Z. MDT. Uh, it's the Metropolitan Police's where they dispatch the core, I can't remember what it stands for, into the car on a digital box, met digital transmissions or something. And then you no longer needed the A to Z, it's right there on the screen. So you turn up and throughout that day you would go, right, so I'm working with this guy, he likes things done this way, I don't want to piss him off, because if you piss him off, that's going to be a shitty six weeks. And so on and so forth. So throughout the day I'm thinking, right, got to get in early now. Driving, as soon as I'm driving there now, I'm in cop mode. You know, you go from being normal person mode to cop mode. So those neurological factors start to play in. When you get in the car, you so, or before you get in the car, you're doing all your safety checks on the vehicle. You're doing the safety checks of your equipment. You're making sure that your CS sprays to hand, your tasers to hand, your ASP to hand, your first aid kit is in the back of that vehicle. Anything that you may need is in that vehicle. Now, me being me, I was very meticulous with that. I don't know if that's OHD because it's still apparent today, but OHD and all of that stuff, ADHD or whatever it is. OCD. OCD, that's it, OHD. Um, OCD, yeah. So I'm very, very on point because I've had people die when I've been there. And that is a shit feeling. You know, that is, that that will wreck you, you know. So all of, all of those checks I'm doing in my head and then I'm tangibly feeling that when I get there. We get into the vehicle straight away. MDT pings up, I call, this has happened, let's go here. As I said to you earlier, we have to be at every situation all of the time. 30 seconds late results in a suspect getting away, someone being seriously injured or worse, or we're turning up to a crime scene of, a, of now a, a murder or worse, sexual assault, whatever it is. No one ever, I've said this on every single podcast, no one ever picks up the phone and says, Hi, Met Police. Just wanted to let you know you're doing an incredible job. We love you guys. You know, power to the blue and put the phone down. No, they call us when it goes bad. When shit's hit the fan and covered everyone, as a last resort, we get called. You know? So we get called when the wheels come off. In my whole 19 years experience in the Met, I come, came across two incidents unfolding. That's how rare it is to come across a crime in progress. We're usually called. We don't usually drive and find something. Uh, you know, you might catch someone oh, breaking into a car. You might find something. But I'm talking about a street robbery in progress, an armed robbery in progress, uh, you know, someone breaking into someone's house. Highly unlikely, you know. So, um, so yeah, those stress levels are incredible, you know. Um, and what is the coping mechanism? Well, we're all different. We're all programmed different, you know. Um, I know people that would just turn up for work. It was a job for them. They would get in the car, think about their paycheck at the end of the month, bimble around, never really doing nothing, you know. Yes, they would go to the calls and they would deal with it, but that wasn't their priority. And I'd look at them and think, why are you guys not stressed out? Like, right. I am stressed, you know. <laughs> Fuck, I'm like, I'm ready to go nuts over here, you know. And, and the mental draining, two, three in the morning, when you'd be on a night shift, and you'd be driving around, and I'd be nodding off sometimes, not because I'm tired, but the mental fatigue is just set in. The worst thing about that whole thing was, there was very few resources within the Metropolitan Police to support you. 
you really had to go through something to get support. And the support you got to me, this is my interpretation of it. It's not the Mets or anyone else's my own. It was an ass-covering exercise when they sent you to be medically assessed. It was just to cover them. So if you topped yourself or something bad happened, if you were an alcoholic or whatever, um, that they could say, we'd sent you to be psychologically evaluated or we'd sent you to do this or that. It was an ass-covering exercise. There wasn't ever anything in there that was like solid, you know. There was a question. One of our, one of our patrons has a question. I'll ask you later on about that, actually, about mental health support within the Met. But um, those people who who can just deal with or don't get don't seem to get affected by stuff. The people who are just normal, not the people who like disassociate and have zero emotions. That's what, that was me. That was me for a long time. I thought, ah, man, I just I just really good in stuff like that, and I don't have any emotions. And I was, and then recently, last year, actually, I was talking to a. Uh, a psychotherapist, and she's like, "No, disassociation is not good." No, no, because no, it pops up. It has a, it has a, a rare thing of like you'd be sitting somewhere, and suddenly it will just pop up. Like, "Hey, I'm so and so from a hundred years ago." And you're like, oh, shit. "Like, where did you come from?" Yeah, exactly. But those people, I don't, I don't understand. They, I don't understand that they exist like that. So they just, they, do, they are a very special breed. I don't know if that's a positive or a negative thing. But um, uh, what was? How did you deal with it? How did you deal with that stress? I mean, you you mentioned you know getting in off a shift. I, I take it for your two your, your two days off and just you know being in 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 tatters in in your place. Um, can we talk about that. So yeah, was that in those situations? Was it a, was it something that you could consciously uh, pinpoint as being the cause, or was it again just a, a general uh, result of the, the stress coming coming down from the job? I think. From me growing up and going through trauma upon trauma as a youngster, trauma, 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 and carrying that trauma, not having an outlet for that trauma, it was normal for me. I would take it on board and kind of just put it in the backpack. Oh, it's it's just normal. It's just normal. And, and I would deal with it in different ways. And one of the ways that I realized that it was materializing, it was becoming a tangible thing, was gratuitous violence in the gyms I would get into gym wars in the gym so I'd go to the gym boxing tie boxing whatever it was and I'd really go to town with other people we would really go at it and then when I'd sit and talk to these people after and they'd go yeah I'm a fireman and you know and then I started realizing very quickly Jesus there's a there's a cycle here look at the people I'm training with just a little bit of information on what they're about and it's the same thing and we would, there would be gym wars, and that would be the outlet for me. And then I'd feel good for a little while. I'd never speak about it. Like I said, I was, I harboured a lot of information. You know, I harboured a lot of feelings. I'm not a very feeling person. Um, even now, I find it hard to express feelings. Um, a classic is go through Instagram pictures and find one of me smiling. <laughs> That's a classic. I have no pictures of, well, very few. And when I see it, I'm like, why was I smiling in that picture? You know, the, the common joke is, everyone smile, oh, Ed, you're smiling. <laughs> Not you, Ed, you are smiling. It's a straight face. But I didn't have a coping mechanism. I think the coping mechanism was violence. I think it was being in the gym and just knocking the hell out of each other. That's what I think it was. And I'm not good at many things. I'm good at, at violence, you know, inside the gym. I'm good at, you know, at... at at really focusing on that and I think 
that was a real training uh, changing point for me i think that's how it manifested itself um now not so much you know but i think that was the way that i coped early on how young was that did that violence become an outlet where did it come from what was what was i think about the childhood i think there's a few questions in there. Yeah, there is. There is. No, 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 no problem. So, so listen, the beginning is always a good point. If you want to understand where someone's come from or where they're going, the beginning is a good point. Um, I come from the cliche East London family, broken background. Um, I was homeless for close to two years in London. Um, I was abused as a child physically by a stepfather, not sexually, but I was beaten up. I had a broken arm for two weeks. Um, various children's homes, it's a kind of cliche run-of-the-mill story. I also found myself in prison before I joined the police for something which was a quick turnaround point for me that made me realise I'm not cut out to be a criminal and if I'm not going to be a criminal, I might as well be a cop. Um, so, uh, yeah, funny but, but true. Um, so, yeah, violence started very... I don't remember a point in my life when there wasn't violence. I can't remember that point. Um, whether it was emotional violence or physical violence. Um, I can remember growing up and thinking to myself, I'm a leader here. These people ain't on my level when it comes to punch-ups in the street. Whether it come, I always wanted to be the guy who would go one step further. I always wanted to be that person who, you know, I can remember going to Mile End Park where a friend of ours had got robbed and um, we showed up a mob of us, we were like, right, we're going to go to the park and sort these geezers out. They've robbed loads of people over there now. And I remember getting a baseball bat and wrapping barbed wire around it. That's the levels of stupidity that I was involved in as a child. And I remember one of the older lots saying, hold on a minute, we only want to teach them a lesson, not kill no one. How old were you then? Probably about 13. You know, crazy times. Yeah, crazy times. But that was pent-up trauma manifesting itself from where I'd come from. Um, so, so yeah, mum was never around. Dad wasn't on scene. Mum had multiple partners. Um, real, real traumatic kind of life. Lived with my gran. My grandmother passed away when I was 13. I went off the rails at that point. Um, didn't want to be with mum because of the abuse with stepdad and ended up being taken into care, um, into uh, a children's home called... Hannah Long House, which was based in East London, Cable Street, uh, uh, Wapping, sorry, opposite Tobacco Dock. I used to abscond from there over the wall, you know, I'd be out over the wall. It was a low, low lockdown one and made myself homeless. I wasn't thrown into the street, but I made myself, I couldn't go back there. And I ended up um, living in a abandoned, it was like derelict site near Tobacco Dock where gas sniffers were prolific, glue sniffers and gas takers were prolific it was prolifically happening now those people then i was smart enough not to get involved with that that stuff um but they were using because of trauma when i thought back many years and looked at it but i never ever dabbled in drugs or, or even alcohol the way that i used to get rid of my feelings were through violence so i'd always it would always be a confrontation now later in my life I'd always have confrontations with people, like friends. I just we'd have confrontations, and guess what? The single denominating factor was he's sitting right in front of you. <laughs> so I started to it started to click. It started to to understand. Um, 
no real qualifications in school. Everything was self kind of taught and um, worked a couple of dead dead end jobs. Had one really influential person in my life. Uh, shout out to Mr. Jerry McGrath. I don't know if he's still around, but very, very influential person in my life. Um, entrepreneur uh, guy. Made a lot of money through Whitbread sign, sign writing factories and all the rest of it. Taught me a skill and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a graft, if you like. And then from that point on, I can remember thinking to myself, this is going to go two ways. There was a, a guy, a group of people that I know, that, that I knew back then, who were out robbing um, SO stations, holding them up, sticking them up. Thank God I found my niche in life. Otherwise, I would have probably been doing that. And that's not cliche, that's real. You know, that's from a real sincere place. And I just chose the right path at the right time. The universe opened up to me and made me see something. Um, and I started to follow that path. Um, and then I had a lot of experience in between, lived in the US, Brazil. Um, and then, yeah, joined the Met, never looked back. Um, until 19 years later when I just woke up one day and thought, what a journey, what was that, you know? Um, and then ended up on the Hugh podcast <laughs> the next day, <laughs> <laughs> 10 years later. So you, America and Brazil, so you you started the Jets before mm -hmm. the Met then? Mm -hmm. Ah, I didn't realise that. Yeah, I thought 94. Was, Jesus Christ, early on. Really early on. You expect the wave coming? That came? I didn't at the time. Do you know what happened? I was working in a, in, a, in a box company and a guy that was working in there brings in an old VHS and goes, you got to see that. You like violence. you got to see this. Get your eyes around this. I took it home, put the old Betamax tape in, grainy thing, and saw <clears throat> Hoyas coming out and just beating everyone up and thought, I reckon I could do that. Three weeks later, left for Brazil. Got there and realized Hoist doesn't train there anymore. He's in Torrance, California, which was classic material. But ended up meeting his brother, Hoyler, who is now my instructor. Um, and was fortunate enough to train with their father and some of the other greats that have been over there. So, um, so yeah, really good start to jiu-jitsu. And that was a calming down point for me. I really found a calming energy in that. Why is that? What was different about it? Because uh, you're talking about violence as an outlet mm -hmm. and you've been talking about it in a negative way. As in, it's not a good thing. And now we're talking about violence, violence. in a positive way. <laughs> yeah, let me let me tell you why. It's really hard for someone to be mad at you when you strangle them with a smile on your face. <laughs> as sadistic as that sounds. Elio used to talk and say, listen, don't get blood out of no one. You know, put them on their back, let them roll over, choke <clears throat> them out, let them submit. And I can remember Hoyce saying to his dad, what are you talking about? All of your fights, people ended up in the hospital with their nose across their face and why are you telling us to be gentle? And, and that just showed that the where they started to where I started, how he had changed his life too. And so now I use violence, as you call, as, as people see it, or jiu-jitsu, as a tool for trauma victims to come in. And I look at them and I can just see pain. I just look at people. I, I look. I don't even look at them. I look into them. I'm looking right through them. I can see it. Anyone I've interviewed in a police custody, barring a few people, it's trauma. The whole thing is trauma. And I think if you come from a place of of love, I teach jiu-jitsu with love and compassion and, and, and 
joy and learning. If you teach it and it starts from a place in love, guess where it ends? As pink and fluffy as that sounds, guess where it ends? It ends in love. But if you teach it in violence and with negativity and with bad intention, guess where it ends? In that same place. And so that's how, that's why when I talk about that side of violence, I talk about in a different, I talk about with a smile on my face. When I talk about the trauma violence, there's no smile in there. there there's only darkness and, and destruction that lives there. Nothing good comes out of that. And I'm proof of that. Yeah. I mean, I've never referred to jiu-jitsu as it, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu, say, with, as violence before. Like, it, and I think I did it there just to bring it back to what you were saying before. And, but t- people do have a mis- misconception of it. But it, it is a different sport. Uh, and I think because of when, you, when you're starting out, I mean, in terms of the benefit from a mental health perspective, because mm. it's not about adrenaline going straight to the roof, sharp, explosive, not early on, no. sharp, explosive. Well, movements. it is it, it is early on, and it is because people don't know what they're dealing with. You know, for example, I'm not the biggest guy by a guy in the room. I mean, I'm taller than you. I'm 6'4". I don't know how tall you are. 6'1". 6'4". <laughs> but... Um, but no, I would always be the guy that would people would come in and go, brand new students would go, I'm going to train with that guy because he's little. Unbeknownst to them, you know, he's little, but he's he's violent. So there would be all kinds of gym wars that go on, you know, and the Brazilians would laugh. They would go, oh, yeah, go train with the, the gringo. Go train with the English guy. Like, he doesn't know a lot. And unbeknown to them, I've been taking private lessons, you know, with the guys, and they would get tied up in knots. And it would kind of be, when they would come into the academy, there were very few English speakers in Brazil at that time. So I was learning classes that were taught in Portuguese. And there was a lot of Americans coming in because the UFC had exploded. And I would have to talk to them. But when they're coming in, they're violent. Their movement is erratic. If you're going to train with a white belt in jiu-jitsu, a first-timer, expect to be accidentally hit, kicked, you know, because they're going to move in ways that you're not expecting. Now, you, you refer to it as a sport. I don't. I don't teach a sport. I don't teach points. I don't teach limitations in my academy. Our jiu-jitsu is in its original format, as taught by Grandmaster Elio Gracie and his sons. It's a self-defense art. I believe it's the most potent style of self-defense the world has ever seen. I honestly believe that wholeheartedly. And I believe military, law enforcement, emergency services, it should be in their curriculum, not the sport. The last place you want to be in a street fight is on your back on the ground. If you understand Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which is what we advocate and what we teach, it has five components. It has striking, clinching, takedowns, throwing, and finally ground grappling. And around all of that, it has a mindset. And then there's a weapons defensive program and there's law enforcement programs. It's a complete package. The sport and taking nothing away from it, it's incredible. It's amazing. I love watching it. But it is a sport. And people get let down by it or they're, they're misinformed about the two. Yeah. The, um, it's the red mist is not your friend when you're in it. That's what's different about it, I think. Red mist is not your friend not. at all. You've you got to keep a level head and you need to understand how to control your temper. How, how control do you control that? How do you control that red mist? Because we get it at some point, right? We all have it. 
Well, Red Mist is a loss of control, right? Mm. Red Mist is a loss of control, and I think anything when you lose when you lose emotional control in whatever situation, that is down to a misunderstanding of the situation you're going into, and a misunderstanding of how to get out of the situation, and a misunderstanding of the tools at your disposal to deal with a highly stressful situation. Exactly like you taught the police. Exactly like we were taught in the military. Is that if you? It's the same reason. If you take the average person off the street now and drop them into the job you used to do, okay, into a car, react into a, a, a situation, they get out of the car, they they'd be like they would never clue what to do, they'd have a meltdown. And it's not because they're any less of a human being than what you were. Exactly. It's that. because they aren't trained to deal with it. They don't understand the situation. So on that point, that training, you know that quote, right? We don't rise to the level <clears> of our ability. We fall to the level of our training. Is that right? Is there some quote that says that? I've never heard of that. But if you yeah. butcher it now, it becomes yours. Go on. What was it? Was it? Something <laughs> like that. I'm not saying it again because I did a really <laughs> terrible job of it. But <laughs> it was it's something like that. And training in the Met, as I, I, and we're just talking on that point, isn't consistent it's not a consistent thing it's more learning on the job than it is training i don't know if that is in the military for example for example when you do a driving course in the met they do a refresher course or they did a refresher course once a year do you know how much see practice doesn't make um perfect there's per perfection is not attainable practice makes permanent so if you're practicing something incorrect permanently 21 days to make a habit 21 days to break a habit or 90 days however you feel whatever it is if you practice something incorrectly consistently guess what you're going to do when the red mist comes you're going to get it wrong so there's massive 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 holes when it comes to the Mets training programs the money that's being invested into training programs should be invested also into the mental health and well-being so that the officers can perform at peak levels all of the time before, during and after stressful situations. Right? Yeah. So the training of once a year facilitates that officer or said officers to make mistakes and when they make mistakes, they're punished by the same organization that doesn't provide adequate training for them. Not only does it not provide adic adequate training for them, they then have an out when they say, we have provided you training because you've signed on the dotted line. Here's our ask covered certificate to say that you have received that training. The next part of the training is only a refresher course. There is nothing there. And I witnessed that myself firsthand. There was nothing in the, in the, in the, in the sphere of that's trauma. They deal with trauma on a daily basis on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, we're going to send you to Empress State Building. You are going to see this person. This person has seen many others in that day. And you go in there, and it's an arse-covering exercise. Right? So there's nothing there for you. It's self-learned. It's a self-learned job. Yes, there's exams. Yes, you have to go through certain things and all the rest of it. But it's completely, when you mess up, that is on you. When, when I messed up, and I did mess up in the Met, guess where the buck fell? On me. Because they would bring my file out, go, when did you last have your training? Oh, you had it on that day. Okay, had your refresher, so why did you do that? God damn, I'm human, that's how that happened. Like, you, you know, it's, it's a crazy scenario. 
And only when you're out of, of it do you realise exactly what it is. What should the model be? How, how would you change things? How would I change it? I think the money invested in equipment, which is necessary. We've got equipment, which is military-based equipment going into the Met now. We then have training in the Met for that equipment. That equipment and that money needs to be uh, that money needs to be invested into the well-being. If I could optimize someone's stuff, if I came to you and said, "You're the commissioner of the Met. I've got this great program, whatever the program is, and this program will be to make sure that your officers are fit and well every day, 365 days a year. They're going to attend and they're going to be in peak performance, optimal performance. And here's my my project. And the project would be, you know, constant updates and reviews of that officer." If they have a situation where where we're not taking care of each other, where you highlight something to me and I become that kind of conduit where I say, hey, he's highlighted something to me that needs to be looked at because we went back to about, we, we talked about not being able to say how we feel as men, not being able to reach out to anyone um, because of the feelings that we have or because we're going to be judged by our peers or whatever it is. And then we do an evaluation of you. We remove you from frontline duties and we assess you. Still in the role, but an assessment role where we can assess you. You know That should take place, right? That should take precedence over everything. Because what does that lead to? It leads to the Met being less sued. The Met wouldn't be sued so much. There wouldn't be um, innocent people suing the Met. There wouldn't be Met police officers internally investigated by their own for something they've done through lack of training. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what the model is. You know, I don't know what it is. And I'm sure the Met have looked into it, but they need to shift into gear to get that moving. You know, they need to figure out something real quick. I don't know what their protocols are at the moment. Mm, it's a challenge with an organisation like that compared to, I mean, you asked about the sort of military uh, preparedness for stuff. The reality is, in the military, when we are not on an operation, we're training. Same with the mess. <laughs> yeah, or... but yeah, I suppose. But then you, you, there's much more going on. So there's always a constant demand for the Met, right? And is and is a limited opportunity for downtime, and then bring that training in for sure. And I think the other thing we have in the Met is personal fitness and health. You know, let's be real. I've drove past police officers and thought, you would never catch me on your best day. Let's be real. You would never catch me on your, on your best day. And then we have to couple that with them carrying body armor, them carrying equipment, you know, all of that stuff. And if their only, only go-to in a stressful situation is their tactical options, not this, not this, you know, not... Uh, not sight or, sp or, or speaking to the people, not pre-knowledge of the person, not understanding where they are in the situation, what road are they on, what street are they on, where is their exit and entry points, none of that from a tactical perspective. They're a sitting duck. So when you get officers that overreact in certain situations, why do you think that is? You know, it's it's, it's to do with a lot. It's a combustion pot ready to go. You know, it really is. It's It's a deep... And I'm sure you have officers on who listen in and, and, and all the rest of it. They will, if they're honest, they will tell you what it is, you know. I'm out 10 years, close to 10 years. So things may have changed. I'm hoping things are better there now. I speak to people all the time. And they're saying it's still the same. I'm glad you got out when you got out, all the rest of it. Um, 
but that whole thing, and we talked about it earlier, there, there's a narrative against the police, you know? Um, and, you know, I can remember there being a narrative against the, the military, military. But now, now more than ever, the police need to step up their game because I know of in the last two, three months, three officers that have taken their life. You know, I don't know them, but I know of that happening. Through, Met through social, uh, no, not not all Met. Yeah, just in general, and I'm sure there are a lot more that I don't know of. Um, and although I'm out, I still support. I still am an avid supporter of the Thin Blue. Look at my, you'll see it. I'm an avid supporter of, of the Thin Blue Line, of military, of of ambulance, of, of fire brigade, of all the services. Um, that, do they do an amazing job? Yes, they do. You know, um, and it's easy to pick out the, the the negative stuff from the outside looking in. But unless you're there, like I said, the stress in the Met is daily. It's minutely. It's secondly. You know, we don't know what's behind that door. You know, we don't know what we're going to. You can turn up to, you can go to a domestic at a house and arrive and suddenly you've got, you know, you've you got a hostage situation. You know, you've got a, um, you've, got, you've got someone who wants to be killed by police. You don't know what you're turning up to. And that unknowing is is more stressful than the knowing because you really have to use perceptional powers and, and understand what is going on there and understand yourself people don't don't take a lot into um strengths and liabilities which is massive you know i'm very self-analytical you know i'm very kind of aware of who i am and what i'm capable of uh and i'm not superhuman but i'm very aware of my strengths and my liabilities when i'm out with my kids they're a liability to me that means I can't run anymore. That means if something happens, I have to have to deal with it. You know, have I injured my foot? Am I able to to run? Can I climb over that if I if if I need to? And most cops don't think like that. They think about after it happens. You know, that that's when their thought process comes in. Um, and there's there's nothing in place for them. There should be people telling them, "Hey, man, you need to lose some weight here," in the nicest possible way. When you join the Met, there should be something that says this is a high-stressed role. You are going to be, you know, you're going to be dealing with everything and, er and anything you can think of. You will deal with. Um, but yeah, mental and, health. Yeah, and most importantly, it's a thankless task. Absolutely thankless task, um, and especially, especially at the moment, you know, it's you only seem to hear, as you, I think, mentioned earlier, you only really hear about anything to do with the police when it goes. When it goes pear-shaped, mm. when it's something bad or perceived to be bad. Especially a, a prime example, um, Sarah Everard, bless her. Um, Met got slaughtered for it. The Met got... Now, are you telling me every Met police officer a murderer? How crazy is that? And I feel that, that, that ripple because I do support them and I was there for 19 years. I've been in that them, them environments. Stranger abduction and murder is very rare, extremely rare. And I'm sure that will come out. You know, I'm sure in their findings and in the court case, it will come out. As horrendous as it is, it will come out. Whatever it is will we'll show, you know, it will wash out. Um, but that's not every person in the Met. That's an individual that has brought the service into disrepute. And we can see that in any way. People forget police officers or the Met as we call them we're not we're not kind of gods we're not 
you know, beings from another planet. We're not superhuman. We are regular people doing a irregular job, you know, and we're going back to our regular life every day, you know. So people forget that because of the uniform. People forget it's not the, the police that make the laws. We don't even enforce them because we were never there to enforce. We're there to uphold the rule of law. There's a difference. You know, the Met, Met have changed their name from Met Police Force to Met Police Service. We're now ser at service to people. And we always were. We were civil servants. We were always at service to people. When I wore that uniform, my job was to serve my community and, and make the community safer, you know. And, and the slogan back then was working together for a safer London. Right? So it's crazy. And, and what people don't realize is Apart from the public attacking the Met on the lowest level, there are internal officers looking for a way to climb the ladder and stepping on officers from below. There's a reason why the Met have um, the internal investigations teams that work in every borough. There's a reason for that, you know. Um, they show up, um, police station becomes scarce, not because anyone's guilty of anything, just because... You know, it's like, fuck, if they want to find something, we can all find something, you know. Uh, we can all find something on someone, you know, whether you put the pen, wrote something in the book the wrong way. Um, and it's a very difficult task when you're being attacked from the inside as well as the outside, you know. So the stresses aren't just the job itself. It's the whole thing that is stressful. And anyone who's in there, I'll take my hat off to you. If you're in there now, you know, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's horrendous. Crazy. Uh, walking, walking a knife edge every time, right? All the time. And uh, and I think he, as terrible it was with uh, Sarah Everard uh, thing. I, I don't think there would have been that reaction from people if it, if this had happened last year, the year before. Mm. The police, any, in fact, any authority at the moment are a target for certain parts of society. Yep. Um, in fact, a lot of society at the moment just because of just because of the dynamics that the pandemic's thrown up, the dynamics that Brexit's thrown up, the dynamics that even stuff going on in the USA is thrown up that's impacted yep, over here. Definitely. And and if and if people want to find wrongdoing, they will find it wherever they want to find it. And the problem is because of the pressure, it, regardless of whether, for example, a video of something taken to a smartphone is a two second clip of a thirty second video that's taken completely out of context. Absolutely. Because of the pressures, you get the authorities will act completely irrationally in coming down on the wrong person or the wrong the wrong team department when they shouldn't be doing anything at all because nothing was done wrong in the first place. If you think about what you just said, that kind of sums it up. You can't get a glimpse of something. A prime example is when I used to work um, on the area cars, I don't know you, I've never met you, but you're driving a car which is known to us. Your plate flashes up on an AMPR, an automatic number plate reader. That goes back to our, our CAD office or wherever it goes, Scotland Yard. They then transmit that to the borough. The borough then send a CAD to our car that we've just passed to say that vehicle, blue vehicle, whatever it is, index, da-da-da-da-da, is known to be a, fire a gunship, carry firearms, or sell drugs. What are we meant to do? What does the public pay us to do? Stop and, you know, our, our job is 
detour, detect and bring those who commit crimes to justice. We don't have that sentences. We're the first barrier of defense. So we turn the car around, fly up behind the car, and I never put the lights on straight away. Turn the car around, I casually drive up behind them. Why do I do that? Well, I don't want to spook them. I don't want them to go taking off and we got a car chase. That's what I don't want, okay? Because I don't know who's in it. The other thing I don't want them to do is open fire on me or, or any members of the public. So we come up behind them and I do another PNC on that vehicle to make sure it's the same vehicle because I don't trust the systems that be. I don't trust anything that is not manually operated. And even there's human error there. I would trust that I have someone to go back to and go, you told me this, not, oh, it came from Scotland Yard, PNC straight in there. We don't put that information into the PNC. It gets added by the borough intelligence unit or whoever put it on there. So we come up behind the vehicle. It's known. Okay, so we're going to stop this vehicle now. We follow the vehicle. What else do I notice about the vehicle? It has tints on the vehicle all the way around. So I don't know who's driving it. I don't know if they're black, if they're white, if it's a male or female. I don't know who it is. I stop the vehicle. The vehicle comes to a stop. We get out of the vehicle. We exit our vehicle. And we go to the vehicle of the car. I still can't see who or what is in that vehicle because it's limo tinted sideways down. Okay, so I don't know who's in it. I know who should own that vehicle and where it should be. The window winds down and there's a person in there completely hostile to me. With the information I've just told you, how would you deal with that person? Uh, I, uh, I, wouldn't, I would be suspicious. Sus would, you, would you be consciously worried about your personal safety? Yeah. You would. Would you be really polite to that person and say, would you mind coming out of it? If they're proper hostile to you, really hostile. Remember, you don't know how many, what's in the car. Verbally hostile, I take it. Saying. Not, yeah, verbally hostile, yeah. yeah. Verbally aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Now, remember, aggression varies on person to person. Some people talk very loudly. So I'm very, you know, monotone when I speak, very quiet about everything. But some, but some people are hugely aggressive. <sighs> to me, that's an indication of something. Now, I don't know if they have been stopped previously by many police officers, but I need to check that vehicle. I then check him for his details or her, and I find out that that person doesn't own the vehicle. They don't have insurance or a driving license. There's no drugs or firearms in the car. It's a poor vehicle. And that's what it is. Bring them out of the vehicle. I'm then, I am then criticized by members of the public who film that from what they've seen. Not the whole situation because they don't know what I know. And my information isn't from me. It's come from PNC. So on stopping that, there's no driving license and no insurance. And then I say to this guy, not that I ever would. Don't worry about it, mate. It's fine. Off you go. Have a safe journey home. On his way home, he knocks over and kills, God forbid, someone's wife and child on a zebra crossing. Would I then be criticized for that as well? That, in a nutshell, is what we get caught out with. Duty bound, what we've signed up to do is a job, and then what we decide to do during that, that interaction with that person. Now, I'm not saying if the person's violent and if he's aggressive verbally to me, you know, at the end of the day, what, what people have to do is understand that regardless of, of who you are, there are laws in the country and you have to conform with those laws. You have to. There's no doubt. That's why there's police officers there. That's why there are laws in place. People don't want to hear that these days. What they want to place blame on is color or race, sexual orientation, whatever it is, and blame that for a stop rather than hard facts.
whatever happens during that interaction, once you know they're out the car or that interaction with them, definitely had the officer has part to play with it. But I don't know anyone in the face of adversity or in the face of violence would be like, oh, calm down, sir. Yeah, come out the car. No, people are not rational at that point. You know, their reptilian brain has kicked in and what they're portraying now is a problem. And that problem can escalate very quickly. So our job is to negate that problem, get them to a place of safety. Once everything's safe, then we can deal with everything. Until that point, you're a hostile threat to me and will be dealt with in accordance to information received and what I see, a run-in risk assessment. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but to me, after 19 years, that's the one thing that kept me safe. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Uh, the problem is the problem is these days in in uh, I said these days again. We we'll say over the last year, is that these the the people who, the smartphone people who will see a skin color and that is a trigger for them to of start course. recording. Of course, they in as much as they say uh, as much as they portray their intent to be. Well, they don't portray their intent to be anything. But it's under the guise of we need more equality, whatever, whatever. It's not just skin colours, all sorts of different. Yeah, of course. Right? But the reality is that the way things have been dealt with last year, it makes the authority, it makes police's job harder to treat people fairly. It's a reality, and it also it makes it puts more focus. It puts more focus on skin colour. It's as in that example, it's made it more. Uh, what's the word? You're more, con- the, the offense, you're more conscious of it. Right. The offense gets pushed to the side. And what you get now is all police are racist. Yeah. That's what you get. Not, oh, let's take those factors into account. I've lived it. I've been there, seen it and done that. That is an actual incident I've dealt with. I've been there, seen it and done that on numerous occasions. What's the way back though, Eddie? Because one of the, one of the aggravating factors is the way, the way, the, how, uh, outrage is good for, is what media want so we're going to, I mean, you're talking about everyone's hounding the police since that uh, since that uh, that murder was reported and, and then the vigil right I've seen it daily I won't name mm-hmm. the article because I've been going on some flipping mainstream media rants lately it just breaks <laughs> me but there's, a, there's, a, there's an outlet and, and they're online on the website every single day I've seen an article and it's highlighting something to do with the Met Police in a bad way of course an officer has been caught doing it all, there, all normal run in the middle stuff there, like is, said humans, there is definitely a narrative out there you know as much as people saying there's a narrative against a minority group there's a narrative against this person or that there is a narrative that's being pushed right now against the Met there definitely is now if you go across the board of the whole country you know, across the whole metropolis, you know, all the way through to Scotland, Wales, the Headloo, wherever these guys are, Greater Manchester Police, we all have issues that we're dealing with. You know, remember, I'm not there anymore. I'm just saying when I was there. When I was there, there was a saying, it said, if you point a gun at a metropolitan police officer, 26,000 other officers will be there to back him or her up. If you point the finger at him, he stands alone. Never was the truer case now than it was then. Expand on that. If you present a gun at me, 26,000 other officers will back me up. Yeah. If you point the finger at me and say, he's done this or he's done that, no one will stand with you. Not one. Why is that? Because of the stigma attached to all police are like this or all police are that. 
Now it's easy for me, and I'm a lighter shade of brown, it's easy for me to say, oh, this person was racist to me. And, and what do people go? Oh, he was racist. Oh, that's outrageous. Victim, victim mentality. I love it. Yeah, I love in that. Where I actually, like I said in the beginning of the, the podcast, I step out of that and go, hold on. He said that to me because I was being a dick. Because <laughs> I was being an arsehole. That's why he said that. He hasn't said it anything else. But to make my insecurities feel good, to make me feel better, to give my ego some life and, and whatever... I'm going to get the rally of the crowd. I'm going to, and I'm not saying all cases are like that. I'm not saying there aren't any bad cops in the police. There are. I'm not saying there aren't. And racism exists. And it, it does exist. It passes society, 100%. Yeah. But there is much more to this agenda than people are actually seeing. You know? Um, have you noticed the... I'm going to get you on your um, soapbox now, Hugh. Have you noticed the kill, kill the bill um, protest? What bill are we talking about here? This is the bill where people are protesting it because it thinks uh, that protesting is getting banned. However, it's just bringing in some limitations in certain circumstances like end finish times, for example. So it's not banning protesting. The bill is to bring in some some extra constraints so that, yeah, to, to control protests but not but, to ban them, right? But what bill are we talking about? Are we talking about that bill or are we talking about the old bill? <laughs> right. Right? Because it seems that that has been hijacked by people that want to attack the police. Those placards have killed the bill. The police are known as the old bill, right? Whenever I see people in scuffles with the police on those, those marches, they're not the people that are there for peaceful marching. I've done my own research on that. Have a look at the faces and who they are. They're on every march, not just the kill the bill march. They're in the BLM marches. They're in the... Um, they were in the um, G20 summit march. You know, these people are prolific people that just want nothing more than to attack the narrative that, that is going on with those kill the bill people. You know, it's totally changed. Look at the narrative that's been spat. Um, we should start attacking the police. Attack the police. You know, the increase in attacks on police has been massive. Everyone the police stops now, they're stopping them for a reason. You know, I had a friend who I spoke to recently said, look, stop this group of guys scootering on the pavement. As mundane as it was, they said, oh, you stopped us because we're, we're, you know, we're this or we're that. No, no, I stopped you because you're scooting on the pavement. You might injure another person. You know, let's deal with the hard facts and let's not deal with anything else. But now the police are, you know, they're retreating and they're hesitant to stop people. They're hesitant to get involved because someone will point the finger and go, he said this to me or he done that. Um... How do, we, how do we pull it back? How do we get it back to us? I'm going to ask you the same question. I have no idea. We're in such a society now, mate, where I think, do you see how many genders that have come out recently? Yeah. <laughs> do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, where does it stop? Like, next thing it will be rights for green beans. You can't cook them in a certain way because you'll offend them or you'll hurt them. Green beans that are grown in a garden. You know, there's so many... We've come so far, turning back, I don't know if it's an option. You know, I just think, I think the police have to man up and deal with what they have to deal with, which is crime and disorder. You know, that's what they have to deal with. And they have to deal with it as crime and disorder. You know, you've got, to, that's what I'm saying to you, you've got to take that on the chin. I think they let themselves down where they, they don't re release the, the, um, the cam footage straight away. 
That is massive, you know. That is massive. Release that information. If you've done nothing wrong in the police, you know, the body cam footage, put it out straight away. Don't let people draw an inference from it. When I was in the, the Mark Duggan riots, you know, the family didn't receive any information for two days. That's what triggered the riots. You know, that's why we were deployed over there. That's, that's what happened. Had someone come out and spoken to them, now, I heard that someone did, but they didn't want that answer. They wanted another answer. Well, we can't give you that answer because an inquiry has to happen. It has to go to the IPCC, uh, the Independent Police, Police Complaints Authority, or whatever it's called now. Um, but people want their answer. They don't want the answer. And that's a big thing, you know. It goes back to that victim mentality and the accountabilities. But the thing is, I, 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 I understand that uh, they need to take things back so the police need to you know, just get back on top of things. But without top top cover, without top-level support, when there's going to be a knee-jerk reaction to a bit of footage or or the fact there was a protest, a follow-up, there was an incident, the police have to be seen to doing something to suspend someone, for example, or wh whatever it is, it w that shouldn't shouldn't be the case. It should be like it was back in the old, you know, back, back in the old days. Back the two years ago, mate, a year and a half ago, you know, when it wasn't like this. It wasn't like this. But then, that's not just, I mean, we're focused on the Met. That's a, a that, we need to man, pull, sort of. You, you know, we're putting the world to peace right now, don't you? It, this is our perfect world in this perfect little bubble here and in this recording studio. We're just kind of <laughs> laying it out real simple for people because that's what, what should be done. We're not politicians. We're not bureau, you know. We're not bureaucrats. We're talking about the frontline officers and what they deal to deal with day to day, and how that affects their mental health. Because that's quite prominent when someone's called a racist in the Met. Because when you say that to them, or that a complaint comes in about them, what do you think all the other Met guys do and girls? What do you think they do? Okay, I'm not going to go near him. I don't want that to be attached to me. You know, I don't want that to happen to me. So. He's then alone or she's then alone. You know, that goes back. They go home. The press miraculously have a way of releasing people's addresses. People show up at the house and they're hounded. And then from something they weren't or something that was taken out of proportion or whatever, they suddenly are this monster and this and that. And the guy put his um, recyclable rubbish in his brown bin, not his green bin or whatever way around it goes and now he's the worst criminal in the world come on do me a favour you got a guy that's been in the job 10, 15, 20 years laying his life on the line every single day doesn't know if he's going to go home that night and you're worried about him putting his rubbish in the wrong bin do me a favour you know that's it's crazy it's right. crazy so Caroline Flack's happened what yeah. happened there I don't know what that is Caroline Flack uh, she was the she was a TV presenter and um, some stuff went on in her personal life and it went bigger than Ben Hur on on social media and on the news got taken to the cleaners and then she topped herself not long ago a few, wow, three wow. years ago yeah three wow. years ago maybe I do remember Hideous that Mike. story maybe I do remember that story yeah 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 I think I do sorry yeah yeah horrendous and it's, that's how things like that happen um, unnecessarily pressure brought on in exposures into people's private lives where you, again you get a piece, you get a piece of the whole picture without context and there's assumptions made and then the, and then the media have got a headline they've got a headline about the met police they've got a headline about a, a tv presenter they've got a headline about this that or that person because it sells before it, because it sells is it's it's absolutely it disgusting down to, of course it is um and i think the 
the media the media is a big part of it. I think it should be policed better. Um, well, on the way here, I heard that they brought in guidelines recently, maybe today even, about Ofcom and what when they're interviewing people, what they can and can't, or what duty of care they have over their mental well-being. Absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It should be. That's part of it. I mean, that's that's part of it. Of course. But then sh- there should be more. There should be heavier fines for them. So if mm-hmm. the if the media deliberately po- if they they post something they haven't done due diligence on, because right? that's the thing at the moment, it's too easy for them to do that. Yeah. I saw an article two days ago, and it was referencing, it was quoting someone, and it named this, it named the person, uh, named the first name of this person, is quoting them, and I read through it. I'm trying to think, cause they're pretty, da- and it was about the police. That's pretty damning. That's pretty damning comments there. Someone said about this incident I went mm. on, and I read through it again. They didn't give the surname of the person, and the quotes came from Facebook. They got this publicly off of Facebook. That person is no one. It's yeah, no one. It's course, not. It's not anyone of authority, and it. it um, and I didn't realize it could just do that until that, it happened. It happened to me yeah. a few years ago in a. Po- I say in a positive way. Someone got killed, and I put. A, I put a you know a, a message on Facebook. It was three four years ago. I put a message on Facebook about this this person, like you know, Gaddy gone. Blah 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 blah. And that was taken and put into the newspapers as a, as if I had given a quote to him about this person. Yeah. It fucking broke me. No. It, it annoyed yeah. that it did it um, because it made me out to be someone looking for attention and as if I'd gone, oh, I'll give you a quote about and it wasn't the yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. But if they're willing to take some random line off of Facebook as a random flipping man or woman and put it in as a quote, people read that and think that's the actual, the, the, what, what in general what people are thinking about whatever incident on it. It makes it out to be worse than what it is. Mm. And what's the, punishment for something like that i mean well there's no punishment for that because they can do it right but let's say they publish an article or a line or a story or, or they po- they post a partial fact okay which is has hideous repercussions and then they get told by offcom or whatever the regulator is or whatever media is they get told off for it and then they get told normally it's take the take the article down retract the information issue, issue an apology maybe there's a small fine it's not that's not a big enough fine. They still benefited from the fucking so. clickbait they've created. Mm-hmm. They still benefited from all the attention they got. There's still people being impacted by article going out, and it's not the financial fines aren't big enough. Prime example of this, right? There is a there's a vaccine, but I'm not even gonna say this, I'm not even gonna say the C word, right? BBC published a headline the other day and it said seven this is the headline, okay? Again it goes back to that division that the media are doing. Seven people Die, uh, seven people have died in the UK of blood clots after receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine. I read it and went, head, that's the headline. Okay, mm-hmm. And I read the rest of the article. Also contained in the article is, in total, 30 people got blood clots. Okay, But the total amount of people who received the vaccine is 18 million. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. 18 million. <laughs> and they put the headline, seven people die from blood clots. It's only one reason, one reason they made that the headline. Because that's not the fact. The fact is 0.0000007% of people are likely to die from a blood clot, if it's even the fucking cause of the blood clot. Mm -hmm. How many people died just out of anything after getting that? There's only one reason they put that as a headline. Outrage, divisiveness, completely misleading people, completely misleading people who don't look below the surface of whatever they're reading or being exposed Mm -hmm. to. And that's part of the issue we've got this thing going on with the police not just met police as you said it's against all police against authority people seeing outrageous headlines seeing outrageous thing or perceived hideous incident because someone got stopped or arrested or whatever because of Mm. whatever demographic they are is perceived to be um uh not as equal as anyone else and uh they don't scratch below the surface next thing you've got the protests going on you've got riots going on you've got statues getting toppled you've got 
people kicking off for no reason, destroying destroying lives, destroying businesses. Just, oh. I told you I'd get you on your soapbox. And... Mate, well, it's... <laughs> We need to have, we need to have, the country needs to be led by good role models, okay? There is no role models who are completely authoritarian. That is people who are just normal, decent people. Normal, decent people that go by normal, good values and standards. Agreed. Okay? And that is it. You have to lead by example. And it's not being done at the moment. I'm going to say people, I mean organisations, who have got the attention of the general populace. That's from politicians to news outlets to flipping sports stars, singers. The, the problem you've got with that is people are choosing sides. And, and you know, some listen, I always say, as you've touched on the, the Black Lives Matter thing, if you weren't screaming and marching <clears throat> and being on that front line 10 years ago, don't tell me you've just become a fan now and you've come out of the woodwork now because you're empowered because you've seen a group of people you know, doing that and you feel it's right because, you know, we witnessed the murder with George Floyd. We definitely did. There was definitely, you know, we're all accountable for that in some way, shape or form. And by that, I mean anyone who was there. If I was there, and I'm no hero, if I was there, I would have done more than just speak to that officer. You know, if you really felt that strongly, white, black, Chinese, Korean, whoever you are, you know, that's where the onus comes in, you know, and and I think that if you wasn't screaming this stuff 10 years ago, why are you on the march now? If you're not still marching today for that, you know, don't jump on the bandwagon because these celebrities, and there are a few of them, and that infuriates me, that are jumping on this bandwagon of, yeah, police this and police that or, you know, equality and this and that because of um, it's the right time for them to do so. It fits their agenda because it elevates their or it maintains their celebrity status, if you like. Um, while all of that was going on, um, a 20-year case had been solved. Michael Barrymore murder. You see that? It got solved. It's been solved. I knew there was a new, there's right. like a new lead. Go on. Right. So, so that's what I'm saying. And there's low, that's a minuscule thing using a bloody Michael Barrymore thing, but I'm just saying what was pushed underneath all of that, those agendas while that was going on, there's so much else that had, that had happened, but it had been drowned out because the narrative that was being pushed by the press, by the media, by those people in, in that sort of thing was, let's turn the whole thing of this COVID thing into a you know, race thing. Let's turn it into a attack the police thing. And people don't realize what's actually going on. I don't realise what it is, but I know there's something bigger at play here. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist like that, but I'm just saying that it, it just doesn't make sense. You know, it just does not make sense that it's taken celebrities so long to come out and talk about this. Right? Because if you have a following on Instagram, you could rally a few thousand people to go out and march. Right? Before, I'm sure racism didn't just happen with George Floyd. It's been going on forever and ever and ever. That narrative... You know, need it. And, and I just think that, yeah, that ignited it. But if you weren't out, like I've got friends that that were like, why are you not coming on the march? Why are you not taking a knee? You know, this and that. Listen, I have my own agenda. Okay, you're on yours. And I understand what you're trying to achieve. But I don't think what you're doing is achieving that. I really don't think that's achieving what you want it to be. Because I've asked many different supporters of BLM, and I'm not bashing them. I think, hey, if you're going to do your thing, do your thing. 
I'll support your, your right to protest. But none of them have the same agenda. They're all different agendas. I've spoken to many people from it. Some want equality. You know, some want equal rights. Some want... Um, it was... I heard a f the funniest one was that they introduced the rights for transgender people into that. I, I don't know what that has to do with their... their um, into BLM. Yeah, right. You know, I don't know how... Unless they're, they're black transgender people, you know. But when you say say black, I'm a shade of that. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I got, I've kept the message on my Instagram. I put up a picture of George Floyd and just to say that anyone who, who's taken their oath to be a police officer, what we witnessed was a murder here. Anyone who's taken their oath and doesn't stand up to this is not worth their, their badge. And I got a message directly from someone who runs the Black Lives Matter. I've kept it on my phone and asked me to remove the post because it drowned out the message. Well, I don't know. It's crazy. It's... I mean, this you know, it's, and then you go because you're not because because you are, BAME community, right? But you're not part of that. Then you become the enemy. You, you, I'm, I'm, you, I'm an enemy anyway. Yeah, I'm I, an enemy anyway because but, because I back the blue. Ah, uh, yeah. You forget that, right? I'm Uncle Tom. Do you know? Do you know him? No. No, me neither. But that's apparently. <laughs> <laughs> that's, Uncle Tom. Uh, who the hell is that guy? The amount of messages I had in hate mail, and I FaceTime them all. Listen, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not. I'm not bad ass like that. But if you're gonna threaten me on on Instagram and that and all the rest, well, I'm gonna FaceTime you. I'm gonna see <laughs> see who you are. You know, and and if I have to, I'll show up and we'll have a conversation. It's that simple. You know, um, but don't do that. You know, because you don't know. You don't know my story, you know? You don't know that I'd spent 20 years defending your rights, that when when it gets bad, that you pick up the phone and dial 999 and I'll come regardless of your colour or who you are or your sexual orientation and I will help you with your problem. Yeah, but that doesn't matter because you're not allowed to have opposing views, Eddie. You've I got to You've got to fall in line with everyone. I agree. You're not allowed. No. You can't have opposing views. No. No. Everyone has to think exactly the same. No. No. Yeah, and, and, you know, you probably know this. Some people really feel offended when you wear a poppy um, on your on your uniform or on your police uniform. I've not experienced it yet. Oh, no, I have. You know, we've seen that. Um, hey, sue me. If you feel so strongly, sue me. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, mate, you start wrapping it up. We went right down the, the rabbit, rabbit hole, hole of, of nothing to do with <laughs> the book. <laughs> hey, that's the message. Yeah, it's not the yeah. book. It's the message. You know, it, it really is the message. I mean, and the message is always and will always be the same. You know, I have a firm, firm belief in. You know, I love your podcast. I love what you do. Um, from the limited stuff I've seen, I think they're very deep. They're very um, thought provoking. You've not listened to all 128. No, not yet. Jesus Christ, Jeez. Daddy. Hugh, you know, I don't even have 128. Like me sitting here, my toes are itching to get moving. <laughs> um, the the big thing for me is 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 the message, you know, and, and I think positive sort of messaging is what the world needs, that lighthouse. And, and you are a lighthouse, whether you think about, you know, whether you think that or not. Um, you know, I know I am from the people that are around me, and I know, I know you are, which is why I'm here. And I know many other people that I interact with are. Um, and I appreciate you having me on, mate. It's, uh, it's an absolute honour to have met you anyway.
because I know who you are, I know about you. Um, and uh, I'm just a, a guy who served in the Met and, and gave up some time to assist the people of my community and my country. And uh, I'm very proud to have done that. It just didn't work out for me with the powers that be. Um, and my journey and timeline wasn't in sync with with what it was. And I, but I'm right where I uh, I should be. I'm right where I need to be right now. Right, that's the main thing. That's Absolutely. It. Be where you want to be, right? And Absolutely. if you can articulate a message well, which you do, then just fucking articulate yeah. it. Yeah. And if people want to listen, they will do. And if they don't want to... Well, Turn they can, off. They can bugger off. Turn off. Avoid me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. Ah, hang on. How do people get hold of you? So Twitter, oh, Instagram. Come on. Yeah. Uh, can you remember them? Just about. They're all the same. At EKBJJ. That's it. Very simple. And a website? Uh, EKBJJ.com. It is simple, isn't it? Very simple. Yeah. My whole life's simple now. So nothing complex here. Mate, good luck with the book. Appreciate it, man. And life. And I'll, uh, I'll have to dig the gear out and get back, get into the gym. And come get, visit us. You've got to come visit gratuitous violence and all that. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, dude. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. or whenever you uh, listen to or watch the podcast on in fact if you're listening to this post podcast a little bit of blurb then you may not realize that the podcast is also on youtube so you can watch uh, myself and the guests in the studio talking away through the podcast instead of just listening um yeah even so leave us a review subscribe on youtube or wherever you are and uh, thank you for being a part of this journey with myself and all of the guests it is appreciated uh, a big shout to the sponsors again, uh, the Aardvark Group, who uh, since 1982 have been trying to rid the world or part of the incredibly difficult task to rid the world of unexploded ordnance, uh, landmines, anti-personnel mines, anti-tank mines littering post-conflict areas, the remnants of war. You can find out more about Aardvark, uh, the Aardvark Group, uh, uh, yeah, on social media. Aardvark Group is their website. And they do a huge amount to support the military community. They uh, a significant percentage of their of their company are actually ex military personnel. So definitely take a look. Aardvark Group also sponsored the podcast today with Rugby Heroes, a not for profit organisation raising money for military charities. They have got an event coming up and is on the twenty sixth of June at Old Dominsonians RSC in Warwickshire. Is a rugby festival. It is going to be an awesome event. I'm really looking forward to it. It's the first event I'm going to be going to after the lockdown uh, is eased enough to be able to do stuff like that. Um, so get into that early. Get in your diary early, 26th of June. Forces Barbarians RFC will also be, play, also be playing. They'll be playing Old Dimensionians Nomads. And uh, there's going to be lots of good food. There's going to be lots of good people. There's going to be lots of good beer and other alcohol and festivities and rugby. Thank you to our 4H. Also sponsored a podcast with Monkey Mountaineering, a veteran-owned niche adventure travel company founded in 2017 by Sam Marshall, a military veteran himself, and they are now in the fourth year providing mountain-based travel and travel and adventure holidays. Full details of Monkey Mountaineering trips and services can be found on their website, monkeymountaineering.com, and get, on, get them on Facebook and Instagram at Monkey Mountaineering. Check them out, give them a like, and uh, check out their awesome images. Be inspired from uh, the previous trips that they organised and conducted. Uh, finally, sponsoring the podcast today were the Development Society, a community of people who want to be better than they were yesterday. 
DevSock for short, they're not just a clothing company, they're truly a community of like-minded people looking to improve. You can find them at the website, thedevelopmentsociety.co.uk, and I strongly suggest when you're on that website, sign up for their infamous Daily Waves newsletter. Uh, check your email address in, top quality information coming through from DevSock the development society.co.uk is the website do it and find them online at the development society on instagram thank you everybody thank you to you thank you to my patrons for being patrons of the podcast uh and thank you to uh everyone thank you even people who don't listen to the podcast thank you thank you for being thank you for being good people if you are good people unless you're an idiot in which case i ain't thanking you until next time out